Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. You're listening to episode 148 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the fearsome Australian cryptid known as the Drop Bear. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Our world is filled with mysterious animals, only some of which have been discovered by science. Animals that have been reported but not scientifically confirmed are called cryptids the most famous of which are Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. But there are reports of strange creatures from all over the globe. For example, the dangerous, venomous land of Australia is home to many strange animals, and it has many reports of cryptids, one of which is the fearsome drop bear. While many cryptids may be timid creatures that largely avoid human contact, the drop bear is different. It's reportedly a vicious, carnivorous animal that can harm human beings at a moment's notice. Yet it's strangely related to the peaceful koala. So what is the drop bear? What do we know about it? And how can we protect ourselves against its vicious attacks? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Hello, my name is Lindsay Sant, and let me tell you what I think about the drop bear. In Australia, you may know that we're famous for all kinds of deadly creatures, like the blue-ringed octopus, the box jellyfish, the funnel-web spider, the brown snake. We even have a cone shell, which is a shell that you'd find on the beach, which is actually a creature that can shoot out a small harpoon, which is strong enough to penetrate a wetsuit and actually poison a person to death. Well, like most Australians, I'd rather encounter one of these creatures than find myself face-to-face with a drop bear. Hi, it's Caroline, and I love all our Australian animals. Even though it's advised not to go near or touch some of them, I'm still always tempted to do so. So if I were to encounter a drop bear, curiosity would probably get the better of me, and even though I might be a little apprehensive, I'd still want to go up and give it a pat on its scruffy little head, and then run. Hi, my name is Lino, and I've seen drop bears. I saw one above me in the trees as I was walking through a forest one day. It stared at me and started to climb down quickly. I believe it was ready to drop on me if I got closer to it. I slowly walked backward, keeping eye contact with it. As I slowly moved away, I turned and walked faster from it. I looked over my shoulder, and luckily, the dropway was still in the tree, but still staring at me. It suddenly gave out a call. Was it calling out to other drop bears around? I don't know. What I did know, I had to get out of the forest or away from the trees. G'day, I'm uh, Matt Frad. If I encountered a drop bear, I haven't up until now, but I, I would totally freak out, you know. I, I think at first I'd be stunned. Uh, you know, is this a koala? Is this a bloody lot bigger? And uh, you know, I, as I say, never seen one before, and I would just turn and get the heck out of there, you know. I just want to get out of there as quickly as possible. I'd totally freak out. I mean, it would be like if you 
encountered a walking zombie. You know, at first you wouldn't be sure what you were looking at, but if, you know, after a while you'd realize something was up, I guess, and I'd, I'd just want to take off. Jimmy, what do we need to say before we start? Since this is an Australian mystery, I wanted to invite some of our Australian friends onto the show. So we'll be hearing from Matt Frad of the Pints with Aquinas podcast and our friends from the StarQuest podcast, The Catholics of Oz, Lindsay Sant, Carolyn Knight, and Lino Sabal. They'll be reading some of the Australian texts for us that we'll be quoting. And you've already heard their comments on what it would be like to encounter a drop bear. Further, even though some creatures may start out as cryptids with only sketchy reports of their existence, they don't all stay that way. Sometimes their existence becomes scientifically confirmed. That was the case, for example, with the gorilla. Originally, people from Europe were skeptical of these hairy forest man-like beasts, and they thought they were just a legend. But In 1847, the American missionary and naturalist Thomas Savage came into possession of gorilla bones, and their existence was confirmed. So we're going to tell the story of the drop bear in chronological order, starting with unconfirmed legends. But then you'll want to hear about the recent confirmations that have appeared in highly reputable sources, including the famous Australian Museum in Sydney and in scientific journal articles. Finally, since we often note personal connections we have to stories, and since drop bears are similar to koalas, I wanted to share a sentimental story of my own. When I was about five years old, my mother took me to a drugstore, and in their toy section, they had a little stuffed toy of a koala. It wasn't a floppy plush koala like a lot of the ones you see today. Instead, it was actually rather stiff, but it had the most amazing soft brown fur, which I'm sure in hindsight was rabbit fur. And it had the cutest little plastic brown eyes and a black plastic nose and floppy black plastic claws. And I fell in love with it. My mom decided to use it to teach me about economics, and so I did chores and saved up my money, and that little koala was the very first thing I ever bought with my own money, and I treasured it throughout my childhood, and it still brings a smile to my face today. Nice. All right, let's talk about the more fearsome koala relative, the drop bear. People often get the recordings of other cryptids, like the calls that Bigfoot is supposed to make. Do we have anything like that in this case? Yes. Here is a recording that was made out in the bush in Australia last year in 2020. And since it was made after the brush fires that occurred last year, the forest has been thinned out and the animal is clearly visible in its tree. Some have compared this kind of call to something straight out of a horror movie. And notice how it changes structure and intensity throughout the duration of the call. that, you can imagine how the creature that made it can seem really scary. When were the first reports of drop bears? Well, people have been living in Australia for tens of thousands of years. According to our current best estimates, the first humans arrived in Australia between 50 and 65,000 years ago. That's the origin of the Australian Aborigines, the people who were there before the arrival of people of European descent. 
Aborigine isn't that common a word in America. What does it mean for those who may be unfamiliar with it? It comes from Latin roots. Ab means from, and you can hear how origine sounds like our word origin. So a people are aboriginal if they have been in a place from the origin or from the beginning, as far back as the recorded history of the area goes. Here in the Americas, we often refer to the first peoples as Native Americans. But in Australia, the first people who lived there before contact with Europeans are known as the Australian Aborigines. And they have cultures that go way, way back. In episode 137 on mediums, we mentioned that legends about the star cluster known as the Pleiades may involve traditions that go back up to 100,000 years ago. And one of the ways they know about that is cultures all over the world, including the Aborigines, have legends about the Pleiades being seven sisters, even though only six are currently visible. Now, the Aborigines didn't have writing, so we naturally don't have written accounts involving drop bears. But what we can discuss are the reports that date from the time of European contact. When did European contact begin? The first known landing of Europeans in Australia took place in 1606 when the Dutch navigator Willem Jansoon, or William the son of John, landed there. For a time, Dutch explorers referred to Australia as New Holland. However, eventually the British explorer and pirate and scientist William Dampier showed up and explored part of the continent. And I love how William Dampier was a pirate scientist. That's awesome. It's like what a kid wants to be when he grows up. <laughs> yeah. In 1770, the British captain James Cook mapped its east coast and claimed what is now New South Wales for the British Empire. By the way, if the name Captain Cook sounds familiar to you, it's because of this Captain Cook. He's the famous one that it refers to. Meanwhile, in 1776, many of Britain's American colonies rebelled, and by 1783, we had won our independence. That meant that Britain no longer had a key place to dump undesirable elements of its population. So they decided to use Australia instead. In 1787, they sent what is known as the First Fleet to set up a penal colony where they could exile convicts rather than putting them to death. It became the first European settlement in Australia. The new colony was planned for Botany Bay in what is now Sydney, New South Wales. So that's the origin of the name of the ship that Khan Noonien Singh was on in Star Trek, Botany Bay. Lots of criminals were sent there, and if you're ever reading a book or watching a period TV show or listening to an old folk song and they mention someone being sentenced to transportation, that's what they're referring to. The person is being sentenced to be exiled and transported to a distant penal colony like the one in Australia. How early did the first reports of drop bears start appearing? Seemingly quite early, here's what the director of Australia's West Coast Veterinary Hospital, Dr. Garnet Hall, has to say. He's the director of and also a veterinarian there at the hospital. So James Cook, one of the early explorers um, who first came to Australia, he actually um, coined the term. So um, he was there with Joseph Banks. And what they found was that these, these things kept dropping out of the trees and attacking them. And they thought they looked like little bears, so they were just like, we'll call it a drop bear. And so the names stuck. 
So reportedly, Captain Cook himself was attacked by a drop bear, and it was he who coined the name drop bear. The other guy that Dr. Hall mentions is Joseph Banks. Who was he? He was a naturalist that accompanied Captain Cook on his first great voyage, so he was there in 1770. He's famous as a botanist and brought back something like 30,000 plant specimens from his travels when he returned to England. He discovered something like 1,400 plant species, and he's so famous that there are 80 plant species named after him. With famous people like Captain Cook and Joseph Banks encountering drop bears, why do they remain cryptids? Well, it was really plants, not animals, that were Joseph Banks' thing. Also, just because an animal drops out of a tree and attacks you doesn't mean you capture it. A fast predator's natural instinct, you know, if you fight back, will be to run off. And drop bears are reportedly very fast, much faster than koalas. And that would have been another part of the problem. Drop bears reportedly look very much like koalas, so it would be hard to distinguish between the two species. In fact, koalas themselves have a very shaky history of scientific study with surprising delays in the publication of scientific findings about them. Wikipedia's article on koalas discusses their history and says, The first written reference of the koala was recorded by John Price, servant of John Hunter, the governor of New South Wales. Price encountered the Cullowine on the 26th of January, 1798, during an expedition to the Blue Mountains, although his account was not published until nearly a century later in the historical records of Australia. In 1802, French-born explorer Francis Louis Barallier encountered the animal when his two Aboriginal guides, returning from a hunt, brought back two koala feet they were intending to eat. Barallier preserved the appendages and sent them and his notes to Hunter's successor, Philip Gidley King, who forwarded them to Joseph Banks. Similar to Price, Barrelier's notes were not published until 1897. So even though people were starting to encounter koalas, there were century-long delays in the publication of their findings, with some of them not being published until almost the beginning of the 20th century. Of course, their existence was proved long before. Reports of the first capture of a live cooler appeared in the Sydney Gazette in August 1803. Within a few weeks, Flinders astronomer James Inman purchased a specimen pair for live shipment to Joseph Banks in England. They were described as somewhat larger than the wombat, that is, the wombat. These encounters helped provide the impetus for King to commission the artist John Lewin to paint watercolours of the animal. Lewin painted three pictures, one of which was subsequently made into a print that was reproduced in Georges Cuvier's Le Reine Animal, The Animal Kingdom, first published in 1817, and several European works on natural history. So people knew koalas existed, but there were still big delays in the publication of some of the information about them. And Australia was a brand new continent for Europeans with thousands of new plant and animal species to study. So it really wasn't until the 20th century that a lot of them got careful scientific attention. In fact, there's still a lot of new discoveries about the plants and animals of Australia today. Furthermore, drop bears are apparently not as common as koalas, and that would make them hard to study too. 
we thus have a variety of factors that would tend to keep drop bears on the cryptid list for a long time, including the facts that they're less common than koalas, that they're easily confused with koalas, and that koalas themselves were scientifically understudied for a long time. With all of those factors, you can imagine how it would take a long time for scientists to clearly distinguish between the two. Right. And given how peaceful koalas are, if someone comes in from the bush and says they were attacked by one dropping out of a tree, you can imagine how they'd be laughed at. I mean, people would think they were crazy or drunk and that they just misunderstood a falling koala as a dangerous animal attack. However, you can see how occasional drop bear attacks would lead to koalas themselves getting a kind of bad reputation. Wikipedia's article on koalas states, Early European settlers in Australia considered the koala to be a prowling, sloth-like animal with a fierce and menacing look. At the beginning of the 20th century, the koala's reputation took a more positive turn, largely due to its growing popularity and depiction in several widely circulated children's stories. So even koalas themselves originally were perceived as these prowling things with a fierce and menacing look until they started appearing in children's books. And one can imagine that reputation was in part due to drop bear attacks occurring periodically. When did reports of the drop bear first begin to appear in the popular press? I haven't been able to determine that, but there's been a definite increase in the number of mentions in the popular press in the last few decades. By 1981, a group of musicians from Australia and New Zealand had formed a rock band called the Drop Bears, suggesting the fearsome reputation they had acquired in the popular mind at that point. You know, rock bands love to give themselves fearsome sounding names like Megadeth. Anthrax, Poison, Iron Maiden, Slayer, and the Drop Bears had several hits on the Australian charts in the 1980s. And in 2011, Warner Music released a compilation album called The Essential Drop Bears. Part of the reason for the slow build in public awareness of Drop Bears is how hard they can be to distinguish from koalas. And even koalas have been poorly understood by the public. So there are a lot of myths about them. Like what? Well, most people know that koalas live in trees and that they eat eucalyptus leaves. However, there's a myth that they can eat only one species of eucalyptus leaves, and actually they can eat several. Another myth is that they are constantly stoned because eucalyptus leaves are toxic, and so koalas are constantly intoxicated. And that's what's responsible for their slow-moving behavior and the fact they sleep for 20 out of every 24 hours. But that's not true. The real reason they move so slow is that the eucalyptus leaves have very little nutritional content. And so the reason koalas move slowly and sleep so much is to conserve energy. They don't have a problem with the toxins. They can handle those. But because they're not getting enough calories out of their diet, they can't run a fast metabolism. That's resulted in koalas having an unusually small brain compared to the size of their heads. Brains require a lot of energy to function. And so if you don't get a lot of calories, you can't run a large brain. As a result, koalas aren't very intelligent. In fact, they're dim-witted enough that they can typically only eat eucalyptus leaves if they're still on the tree branch. If you take the leaves off the tree branch and try giving them to the koala, it will be confused and not eat them. 
What eucalyptus leaves do have, though, is some water content, and this has led to a myth that koalas don't need to drink water because they aren't seen coming down from trees very often. Actually, they do need to drink water, but they spend so much of the day sleeping that people don't notice it when they come down to drink. Can koalas move fast or are they always slow? The idea that koalas always move slowly is another myth. They can actually move really fast on the ground. They can run at speeds up to 20 miles an hour, which is faster than a lot of humans can run. And when they're up in trees, they can leap up to six feet at a time without a running start. Just wham, six foot jump. Incidentally, koalas also have fingerprints that look remarkably like human fingerprints. The reason for these is to help them grab onto the branches of the trees where they live. And that's also the purpose of human fingerprints and toe prints, to help us more effectively grab onto things with the tiny ridges on our fingers and toes, creating additional friction. That's why we have fingerprints, but a lot of species don't. And it's why our fingers and toes wrinkle up in water. It's not because the water takes oil out of the skin or anything like that. Instead, it's a reflexive response our bodies do to create extra ridges in slippery environments so we're less likely to slip and fall down or lose our grip. What's the biggest myth about koalas? Perhaps that they are just cute, friendly, docile animals the way they appear in children's books. They may be cute, but they're not that friendly or docile. They are asocial and do not live in groups. There are only temporary bonds between mothers and their children, which are known as joeys. Mothers otherwise lead solitary lives and they don't band together with other females. And males live completely alone. They are territorial and they will warn each other off and get in fights. Naturally, they usually do not like being petted by humans. They don't want contact with each other, much less do they want contact with us. So you can see how koalas originally had that kind of fearsome, prowling reputation before the children's book depiction of them took over the popular imagination. With koalas being antisocial animals that normally move really slow, but that can suddenly leap six feet or charge at 20 miles an hour and get in fights, could make them even harder to distinguish from drop bears. Indeed. So when was the existence of the drop bear scientifically confirmed? It would appear to have been in just the last few years. I don't have the exact year, but in 2012, the scientific journal Australian Geographer had published a paper by researcher Volker Johnson of the University of Tasmania. It was titled Indirect Tracking of Drop Bears Using GNSS Technology. So there were published scientific studies on them by 2012. Now that scientific journals are reporting their existence, do they have a scientific name? Yes. Ordinarily, you don't get a scientific name unless you've got an actual specimen known as a voucher specimen that scientists have in their possession and that can be used for future study. There is an exception to this, which happens to be the Loch Ness Monster. It was given a scientific name in 1975, despite the lack of a voucher specimen, because of the way conservation laws work in Britain. It's like, if this thing exists, we need to conserve it. And for that, we need to give it a scientific name so it'll be have legal protection. Nessie's scientific name is Nessiteras rhombopteryx, which means Ness monster with diamond-shaped fins. However, now that scientific journals are reporting on the drop bear, it has been given a scientific name, too. 
To understand it, let's start with the name of the common koala, which is Phascolarctos cinereus. And yes, I'm using a basically English pronunciation, even though this name is partly based on Greek and Latin, because I don't want to be too much of a language geek at the moment. This is based on three roots, the first of which is phascolos, which is one of the Greek words for pouch or bag, because the koala is a marsupial animal that has a pouch for its young. Arctos is Greek for bear, and cinereus is Latin for ash-colored. So a koala, a phascolarctos cinereus, is an ash-colored pouch bear. What's the scientific name of the drop bear? Thylarctos plummetus. This, again, has three roots. Thulactos is another Greek word for pouch or sack, and this root is found in the scientific names for other marsupials, since they also have pouches. For example, there's a carnivorous marsupial known as the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf. It's called a tiger because the rear part of its body has stripes, and it's called a wolf because it looks like a dog. And, of course, it's called, called Tasmanian because, of course, it was a native to Tasmania, New Guinea, and to the Australian mainland. It survived into the 20th century, and even though it's thought to be extinct, there are occasional reports of it, so it may still exist. We even have motion picture footage of it in a 20th century zoo, and we'll have a link to where you can read about it and watch the footage. But its scientific name is thylacine cynocephalus, which you can hear how the Greek word for pouch, thulactos, influenced the name thylacine cynocephalus, which means that the Tasmanian wolf is a dog-headed pouched animal. The name of the drop bear, Thylarctos plummetus, has two other roots. In addition to thulacos, meaning pouched, it also has arctos, meaning bear, like we heard in the name of the koala bear. So thylarctos means pouched bear, which is because it looks a little like a bear just like koala bears. Plummetus, of course, is based on the English word plummet because it plummets out of trees to seek its prey. And as far as scientific names go, that's a bit whimsical since it isn't take, taken from Greek or Latin. How common are whimsical scientific names? We've entered an age in which scientists are fond of giving things whimsical names, like the subatomic particles known as gluons because they glue quarks onto each other to form protons and neutrons. This also happens in biology. In fact, there is a trilobite species that is literally named Han Solo. <laughs> and the name of the element potassium comes from pot ash. Pot ash is what you get when you take wood and you put it in a pot and you burn it to reduce it to ashes. So it is literally ash in a pot or pot ash. And one of the principal ingredients of potash is potassium. So the scientist who discovered the element in 1807, Sir Humphrey Davy, called it potashium, or potassium. We'll have a link to an article about other absurd, whimsical scientific names. In any event, thylarctos plummetus means pouch bear that plummets, which would be a basically accurate description of the creature. But neither the koala nor the drop bear would really be bears, right? Correct. Neither the koala nor the drop bear are really bears. Bears are a different type of animal, but both koalas and drop bears superficially resemble them. That's why the Greek root arctos, or bear, appears in both of their scientific names. What is the exact relationship between koalas and drop bears? 
I don't think we've been able to do precise genetically sequencing on the creatures yet. I mean, there are a lot of other genomes we're trying to do for for a lot of other animals that are more relevant to human society than, you know, these. But I can envision three basic relationships, each of which I've seen referenced in the literature. The first idea is that they are a completely separate species, that koalas and drop bears aren't significantly related though they obviously look similar, in which case there could be a kind of convergent evolution to similar forms. The second is that they are a subspecies of a single common species that exists stably alongside each other. So here they would have like a fairly recent common ancestor, and that explains why they look like each other. The third is that drop bears are a rare mutation that occurs within koalas, and so it's like every so often a koala in utero mutates and you get a drop bear, but they don't maintain a separate breeding population. I find the different possible evolutionary relationships between koalas and drop bears really interesting, regardless of whether they would be a rare mutation, a separate subspecies, or an entirely different species. They obviously resemble koalas in a lot of ways, and that leads me to think about how that could be to their advantage in evolutionary terms. What kind of evolutionary advantage might the similarity give them? Well, we know that in nature, some species have evolved to look like others as part of either an offensive or a defensive strategy. Back in episode 130 on lie detectors, we talked about how this form of deception is part of the survival strategy of some species. For example, some predators are built physically to disguise themselves so that the prey won't recognize them. This is the case, for example, with the anglerfish, which has a long filament growing out of its forehead that it can wiggle back and forth to look like a nice juicy worm that a passing fish could eat. But what they're really doing is wriggling this filament as bait to draw in the passing fish so they can eat him. On the other hand, some animals are physically built to look like predators or dangerous animals. This is the case with the red milk snake, which has alternating bands that go red, black, yellow, black, red. That's very similar to the color pattern on a coral snake, which has bands that go red, yellow, black, yellow, red. The difference is that on a red milk snake, the bands for red and yellow are always separated by black, while on a coral snake, the bands of red and yellow are always together, leading to the saying, red and yellow can kill a fellow, because coral snakes are venomous, but red milk snakes are not. The red milk snake thus deters predators by making them think it's a dangerous coral snake when it isn't. So you can imagine how it could be to the advantage of the drop bears to physically look and usually act as if they were harmless koalas. That would let them sneak up on their prey and make them effective hunters. It also could explain why they weren't scientifically studied for so long. What results have been published about them? Some of the journal articles can be kind of technical, so for a popular level summary, let's look at the page that the Australian Museum hosts about them on its website. And for context, the Australian Museum is extremely prestigious. It was founded in Sydney in 1827, so it's 194 years old. 
is the oldest museum in Australia and the fifth oldest natural history museum in the world. It's kind of like an Australian version of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum for Natural History here in America. What does its page on drop bears say? It says that the drop bear is described as a large arboreal predatory marsupial related to the koala that drops on its prey. In the section on the identification of drop bears, it says, Around the size of a leopard or very large dog with coarse orange fur with some darker mottled patterning as seen in most koalas. The creature is told as a heavily built animal with powerful forearms for climbing and holding onto prey. It lacks canines using broad, powerful premolars as biting tools instead. It also says that the largest drop bears, and these are the very biggest, can weigh up to 120 kilograms, which is 265 pounds. So at least in rare cases, they can get really massive. Specimens of that size reach 130 centimeters, which is four feet, three inches long. And such a giant drop bear would stand 90 centimeters or about three feet tall at its shoulder. That, however, is the largest they get. Most would have to be much, much smaller in order to be confused with koalas. Concerning their habitat, the Australian Museum says that they live in closed canopy forest, as well as open woodland on the margins of dense forest, never encountered near roads or human habitation. Regarding their geographical distribution, it says drop bears can be found in the densely forested regions of the Great Dividing Range in southeastern Australia. However, there are also some reports of them from southeast South Australia, Mount Lofty Ranges, and Kangaroo Island. They also have a map that you can look at on the website of the parts of Australia where they're reported, which is mostly along the eastern seaboard of Australia, though there is one large pocket in the middle of the continent. And concerning the feeding and diet of drop bears, it says, Stories of kill sites and examination of scats suggest mainly medium to large species of mammal make a substantial proportion of the animal's diet. Often, prey such as macropods, like kangaroos and wallabies, are larger than the drop bear itself. Drop bears supposedly hunt by ambushing ground-dwelling animals from above, waiting up to as much as four hours to make a surprise kill. Once prey is within view, the drop bear will drop as much as 8 meters, 26 feet, to pounce on top of the unsuspecting victim. The initial impact often stuns the prey, allowing it to be bitten on the neck and quickly subdued. If the prey is small enough, drop bears will haul it back up the tree to feed without harassment from other predators. The article also notes in a brief fossil record section that the drop bear evolved in the Quaternary period, which began about 1.8 million years ago and runs up to the present. Also, speaking in terms of the fossil record, it was suggested in 2016 on the BBC documentary series Nature's Weirdest Events that drop bears could somehow be related to the extinct species Thylacoleo carnifex. This was a sort of marsupial lion-like animal, although, of course, it really wasn't a lion any more than drop bears and koala bears are bears. But it does appear in Aboriginal rock art and it hunted from the branches. We have art where you've got a thylacoleo carnifex, you know, marsupial lion thing up in a branch ready to pounce. And as a marsupial, thylacoleo carnifex is related to koalas. Is it unusual for marsupials to be carnivorous hunters? Actually, no, not at all. Many marsupials are carnivores, including not only thylacoleo carnifex, but also the Tasmanian devil, the Tasmanian tiger or Tasmanian wolf that we mentioned earlier, 
the numbat, the fat-tailed dunnert, and the tiger quoll. In fact, even the opossum that we have here in America is an omnivore that hunts small game, including fish, amphibians like frogs, reptiles like snakes and lizards, birds and their eggs, small mammals like young rabbits, rats, and mice, insects like grasshoppers and beetles, and other small animals. So meat-eating is something that many marsupials definitely do. What are some of the challenges scientists have faced in studying drop bears? The abstract for Volker Jansen's article in Australian Geographer says, Animal tagging and tracking has been a fundamental tool in the quest to increase our knowledge and understanding of biogeography and ecology for about 50 years. Monitoring animal populations is also necessary for conservation purposes and to limit negative effects on the human population, particularly in an era of human expansion into traditional animal habitats. The use of Global Navigation Satellite System, GNSS, technology has been responsible for significant advances in the field by providing the ability to obtain accurate, regular, and frequent estimates of the changing distributions of many rare animal species. This paper proposes an indirect GNSS-based method for tracking drop bears. This involves tracking the prey rather than the predator in order to map the population of drop bears in a particular area. The method can be used to effectively estimate the number of drop bears in the study area. Analysis of the collected data provides valuable insights into the hunting behavior of drop bears and has implications for a better understanding of geographical distribution of other rare species, including hoop snakes and bunyips. In the article itself, Jansen writes, Australia is home to many unique animals, particularly monotremes, i.e. echidna and platypus. And marsupials such as the kangaroo, wallaby, koala, possum, wombat, drop bear and Tasmanian devil. Monitoring these animal populations is important to ensure their conservation and to limit negative effects on the human population. For example, in the tourism and agricultural sector, particularly in an era of ever-increasing human expansion into traditional animal habitats, several species such as the Tasmanian devil are presently declining and others such as the drop bear are rarely seen. Hence, this paper comes at a critical time in national history when relatively little is known about indigenous species whose status may be threatened. He goes on to review the history of tagging and tracking animals and how the technology has changed over time. He also describes the origin of drop bears and their relationship to koalas like this. The drop bear, Thylactus plumatus, is an arboreal, i.e. tree-dwelling, predatory marsupial that closely resembles the koala, Phascolactus cenarius, and is therefore difficult to spot. Colloquially, it is often referred to as the carnivorous evil twin of the koala because it is a vicious creature sharing a very similar habitat. Based on megafauna bones discovered in Aboriginal middens, it is believed that the two present species evolved from a single ancestor during the late Holocene. Theories that its dropping skills follow from genetic similarities with sugar gliders, 
remain empirically untested. Concerning the build of drop bears and how they hunt, he writes, The drop bear is a strongly built animal with powerful forearms and claws for climbing and holding onto prey. In stark contrast, a very similar looking but smaller koala. It has large canine teeth that are used very effectively as biting tools. It generally hunts during the day by ambushing ground-dwelling animals from above, skillfully latching onto the victim's neck to kill its prey. Quietly waiting in a tree for several hours, it closely resembles a sleeping koala. Once prey is within striking range, the drop bear will drop several meters out of the tree to pounce on top of the unsuspecting victim. The initial impact generally stuns the prey, allowing it to be bitten on the neck and quickly subdued. The examination of kill sites and scats indicates the medium to large species of mammal make up most of its diet, Hosking 2012. Often, the prey is considerably larger than the drop bear itself. The distribution of drop bears across Australia is quantified by the National Drop Bear Index, NDBI, which indicates the average population density per km2. See figure 1. Aboriginal Dreamtime legends suggest that the drop bear was once much more widespread, hence the need for contemporary conservation. So drop bears are reported to be in a population decline, making it important to figure out how many there are and where they are so that they can be saved from potential extinction. How much of a problem do drop bears pose for humans? According to Jansen, Unlike other peculiar Australian animals such as the bunyip and the hoop snake, which are rarely encountered in even thinly populated areas, drop bears pose a considerable risk to unsuspecting bushwalkers, particularly tourists, because they closely resemble the koala. Drop bears do not target human beings specifically, but there have been several cases where humans have fallen victim to drop bear attacks, resulting in serious lacerations and even death. Disappearances, which may or may not be attributed to drop bears, have occurred frequently across Australia. So we don't really know how often drop bears attack humans, Jansen says. They may be responsible for some of those disappearances, but disappearances can be caused by other things as well. In fact, in future episodes, for all those who have asked, yes, we will be talking about the missing 411 studies that David Polites has done about people mysteriously disappearing in national parks here in America. Are there any drop bears in captivity? Just last year, in 2020, the Scottish ITV reporter Debbie Edward went to the Kangaroo Island Wildlife Park to meet with the director of Australia's West Coast Veterinary Hospital, Dr. Garnet Hall, who we heard from earlier. For Americans who may not be in the know, ITV is a British television network, and my impression is that it's the most popular one after the BBC. In any event, Dr. Hall, who is himself a veterinarian, said he could arrange for Debbie Edward to actually hold a drop bear. But he indicated that she would first need to be clothed in proper safety gear. Video of her encounter, which we'll have a link to, shows the veterinary workers putting her into this really impressive looking safety suit. It looks like something Batman would wear in one of the recent movies, you know, lots of protective hard plastic padding or something, you know, stuff like that. Once her body is covered, they put these extremely padded gloves on her hands. They have her wear goggles to cover her eyes, and they even have her wear special boots to protect her feet. Here's some audio from the encounter from ITV News. She's got the drop bear suit on. How are you feeling? Well... At the moment, okay, because there's nothing near me, but it is a bit like a Batman suit. 
so I'm a bit worried about why I need this level of protection. So, here we go. I'm getting something to cover my eyes as well. Dr. Hall explains to the viewing audience... So, drop bears are a close cousin of the koala, but they're actually really vicious. So, it's it's sort of like a, a dingo and a, and a normal domestic dog. Um, they're bigger, they've got longer claws... Um, they've actually got really small fangs, and the interesting thing about the fangs is they have a really um, mild venom. It's it's not like a, a snake venom that can make you really sick, but it just causes a lot of really um, local irritation. So the third most common injury that we see in tourists in Australia um, is actually from drop bear attack. So Dr. Hall says that drop bears are different from koalas, kind of the way dingoes are different from dogs. They're typically at least somewhat larger and more aggressive. He says that drop bears are really vicious and that they have a mild form of venom, apparently much milder than many of the other venomous species in Australia, and that they're responsible for the third most common injury among tourists in Australia. Keep that in mind because the danger drop bears pose to tourists will come back in this episode. As you can imagine, Edward is really starting to fear the drop bear that she is supposed to hold in a few minutes. You can see it on her face. Then an assistant brings out the creature, and the whole time he's bringing it toward her, he's turning his face away from it and shielding his face with one of his hands. Also, Dr. Hall, who is not wearing protective gear, keeps several feet away from the assistant and only points towards the animal as he talks about the differences between you can notice between a drop bear like this and koalas. It looks visually, it looks very like a yeah, koala. Yeah, like a like a um, like a well, a wilder version. Yeah. So if you look at, I won't I won't come too close, but I'm just I'm just going to point. So the difference between this and a normal koala, firstly, you're going to see the size. Then, if you can see, you see he's got those black hairs that are almost like bristles. They actually come out a lot further from the fur, so they're really really like coarse. Okay. Keep your hands down nice and low. Okay. All right, I'm just gonna flatten. Okay. Oh, he's fucking yours now. Okay. Yeah. Just okay. No, no fast. Okay. Yeah. Nice and steady with the the yeah. bear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, keep them calm. Yep. Everybody looks very very worried little... about this. I'm you're... trying not to be worried because I'm been told that he can sense if I'm worried. Yeah. We've been told that this is quite a dangerous bear that's been known to attack people. It's called a drop bear. <laughs> because they drop out of the tree to attack people. Just been handed it and had to put on all of this protection gear because of what it might do to me. But at this point, something seems to start going wrong. In what you're about to hear, one of the staff members says that their insurance might not cover this. And Dr. Hall says he's going to get the dart gun. And the staff of the wildlife park get the animal off of Edward as quickly and calmly as they can. I'm not quite sure what it's doing right now. It's looking at... What? Okay. No, right. I thought he was going to get you. Right. Um, you, I, I really want might, to take we, it off. I-10 now. insurance might not right. cover this. Do you want to take it off? I'm really not... Okay. I'm, I'm going to get the dark gun. Just don't move. Don't move. No, okay. Notice I have an extra thumb okay. on okay. compared to the koala. No, take it off. Take it off. Please, take, please it off. take it off me. Go on. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. It's all right. It's all right. Okay. Good boy. So, Debbie Edwards survived her experience with no harm done, but to illustrate how lucky she was, let's hear some audio footage from two male animals in captivity. 
This is from footage that was taken by a tourist who was separated from them. He's filming two of the creatures as one climbs up towards the other in a zoo enclosure, uh, you know, on a tree. At first, it's really slow. You know, the fight hasn't really started yet. One of the animals who's higher up in the tree is trying to warn off the others by making a kind of screeching sound. Then, suddenly, the fight starts, and you can hear the tourist's alarmed reaction. Then, after one has driven the other away, you hear this more panting, roaring, bellowing sound, which is another way that they warn each other off and intimidate each other, like the call we heard earlier in the episode. I saw a sign. Look how slow he's attacking. <laughs> it's too weird sound. Oh, 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 oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Oh my god, the fight is running, running. Oh god. Goodness, goodness. Goodness, goodness. gives you a partial experience of how intense this crazy fight was. In the video, which we'll have a link to so you can see it for yourself, the animals start by moving very slowly, and then there's this sudden dramatic burst of speed and frenzy. They're suddenly moving like lightning, which is why the tourist responds the way he does. But the video shows how instantly these animals can switch from seemingly being calm into having sudden violent confrontations. So you can imagine what it would be like if a creature in that state suddenly dropped on you from above and went to town on you with its claws and fangs. If you have to travel in a forest which drop bears are known to infest, are there any defensive measures you can use to protect yourself? There are, and some of the proposed methods are particularly important for foreigners visiting Australia. Why is that? It's reported that drop bears have ways by smell and hearing to tell whether a person is a foreigner or not. And if they're a foreigner, then they're a more vulnerable target because they're less familiar with the forests they're moving through. Jansen writes, While it is recognized that more research is required, there is unmistakable evidence that tourists are much more likely to be attacked by drop bears than Australians. Genetic analysis suggests that this may be related to the Australian mateship trait, which extends to animals unique to Australia. There are, therefore, important and unusual parallels with the equally rare invasive alien species, the Bundabear, which similarly favours arboreal habitats and preys on tourists, especially young female blonde foreigners. However, drop bears' attacks on humans are rare, mainly because Australians are familiar with drop bear ecology. Tourists are deliberately diverted and reality TV survivor series are usually undertaken elsewhere. 
In fact, Jansen himself reports the results of a study he conducted to demonstrate the drop bear preference for attacking foreigners. In an additional investigation, pairs of data gatherers bushwalked along the same path in order to examine whether foreigners were more prone to drop bear attacks than locals. In the first scenario, an Australian was followed at a distance of about 50 to 100 metres by an international research assistant. In the second scenario, the two data gatherers would swap positions. While the relatively small data sample collected precluded rigorous scientific analysis, some general comments can be made. In both scenarios, Australians were far less successful in being dropped on than foreigners. Only 10% of Australians were targeted in the event of a drop bear attack, and it was later discovered that those Australians were not fond of Vegemite, lending further weight to Honeydew's 2003 incisive analysis. The results further indicate that drop bears do not necessarily target the last person walking in a line. However, more research into the behavior of drop bears is required in order to confirm these findings, which may reflect seasonality and the presence of alternative nutrition. One of the things Jansen mentioned was Vegemite. What's that? It's a kind of thick brown paste that's made from brewer's yeast extract and that's used as a food spread. It's very popular in Australia, and if you've heard the song A Land Down Under by the Australian band Men at Work, you may remember the reference to a Vegemite sandwich in the song. Most Americans aren't familiar with Vegemite, but I've had it, and it has a pronounced smoky, meaty flavor with lots of umami. I like it just fine, but apparently it's not to a lot of people's taste if they aren't used to eating it. But it's also uh, high in B vitamins, so it's good for you. Why do the researchers think Vegemite might be relevant here? According to Jansen, Studies have indicated that byproducts of the interaction between chemicals found in Vegemite and those found in human sweat repel drop bears, Honeydew 2003. Most Australians and immigrants who have lived in Australia for long periods of time tend to eat Vegemite consistently, usually once a day, so exuding these chemicals through their skin permanently and are thus protected. Visitors, on the other hand, do not have this natural protection and are therefore advised to apply a liberal amount of Vegemite to the skin, the most suitable area being just behind and towards the top of the ear because this area is prone to sweating and closest to the top of the head. You also mentioned that drop bears can detect foreigners by their hearing. How does that work? Jansen's paper states, Furthermore, it has been shown that the drop bears can detect foreign languages and are prone to target the origin of such sounds, but using the Aussie lingo may fool the average drop bear. Stewart, 2005. As a result, some guides taking tourists into drop bear infested areas sometimes recommend trying to sound as Australian as possible if you're going to speak. Obviously, keeping quiet in these areas is another option. Are there any physical ways of fending off drop bear attacks without having to wear a full Batman-like suit of protective gear? Some have suggested putting forks in your hair, you know, so that the tines stick upward to either deter the drop bear or injure it when it falls on you. I, I'm personally skeptical of that as a practical possibility. I think it's silly and practical folk advice, you know, like a lot of advice you hear about interacting with dangerous animals. Don't believe everything you hear on YouTube about how to survive a bear attack. Drop bears, like all predators, should have really good eyesight so they can target their prey, and that would mean they could see the forks. And most people don't have enough long hair that would be wound or braided in the right way to keep such forks firmly in place. As a result, it would be much better to wear a more secure form of headgear 
In fact, Jansen's paper states, Investigating the effectiveness of several methods of protection against drop bear attacks has shown that the best protection is achieved by wearing a motorcycle helmet when bushwalking in drop bear territory, although this may be impractical in tropical regions. And that sounds much better to me. A motorcycle helmet would provide much more protection than forks in your hair. Are there any ways of telling whether there are any drop bears in the canopy above you? Jansen states, An accomplished method of determining whether a drop bear may be lurking in the floor or canopy is to lie down beneath a tree and spit upwards. If a drop bear is sleeping above, it will most likely wake up and spit back. Young et al. 1981. However, this approach includes some risk, and the consequences can be devastating if drop bears are on the hunt for prey or in the middle of the mating season. Bushwalkers are advised to exercise caution in areas frequented by drop bears. And that's certainly good advice. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on drop bears? Drop bears are a fascinating, legendary Australian cryptid. There appear to have been many more scientific studies published on them than other cryptids. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Australia has a reputation for a lot of dangerous and highly venomous animals, but... Australians are a brave lot and take this in stride. In fact, while researching this episode, I happened to find a tune by an Australian singing duo called Scared Little Weird Guys, and they do a song called Come to Australia, so we'll close the show by letting you hear that. If you watch the video on it, it even features footage of what appears to be a drop bear attack, only in this case, the creature is on, isn't in a tree, but on the ground in a pen, you know, so it's confined, yet it still leaps up at the person filming it with a camera. Oh, and one other thing. Uh, While I was researching this episode, Carolyn and Lindsay of the Catholics of Oz sent me several links that were very helpful. One of them was to the webpage of Great Value Vacations, which has a know-before-you-go page telling prospective tourists about drop bears. On that page, it says... If you are planning a trip through tree-dense areas of southeastern Australia or its surrounding islands, be sure to pack the above-mentioned precautionary items. The highest occurrences of recorded sightings usually begin around April 1st each year as the animals prepare for the breeding season in early summer. As with all travel, remain on your guard. Be aware of your surroundings and never, ever approach a wild animal. If you have further concerns, feel free to discuss them with your local tour guide or any Australians you may know. They'll be overjoyed to answer all your drop bear related inquiries. So if you really want to see a drop bear, the travel agency indicates that now would be a good time to go because the animals are preparing for breeding season and the peak of drop bear sightings is around April 1st. That's today as we release the show, isn't it? Yeah, uh, this episode is releasing April 1st, April Fool's Day. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, that's a spring month, but for our friends in the land down under, it's actually in the autumn or fall. Let's hope drop bears don't fall on too many people this season. All right, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to listeners on the drop bear? Well, first, we'll have a link to the Pints with Aquinas podcast that Matt Frad does, so be sure and listen to that. Also, we'll have a link to the Catholics of Oz podcast, so be sure and check that out. We'll have a link to the video with the animal call from the beginning of the show, a link to articles on mythical animals that turned out to be real, the Australian Museum's page on drop bears, also articles on drop bears, koalas, marsupials, the history of Australia, Captain James Cook, Joseph Banks, the Drop Bears musical group, 
myths about koalas, koala fingerprints. We'll also have that ITV report that Debbie Edward did on Drop Bears where she got to hold one. Also, the video of the crazy fight that we heard some video or heard some audio from. We'll have an article on the scientific name of the Loch Ness Monster. Also, uh, that article I promised with video of the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf. We'll have articles on whimsical, absurd scientific names and where they came from. Why do venomous animals like to live in warm climates? A video on that. Volker Jansen's journal article on GNSS tracking of drop bears. An Australian Geographic article on drop bears targeting tourists. Great Value Vacations drop bear page. The Come to Australia song. And also a really disturbing video that we didn't really talk about. But if you want to see it, there's a link to it. So it's at the bottom of the further resource. Just look for the link for a really disturbing video. All right. Jimmy, what mysterious headlines do we have for folks today? Well, since we were talking about drop bears, I thought I would mention, I thought I'd give us a couple of links to articles about the Tasmanian wolf, because since it's thought to be extinct, it's now back to being a cryptid. You know, it's not known to currently be living. So there are sightings of it and we'll have um, reports of sightings of it. So we'll have a link to a sighting that occurred on January 21st, 2021, you know, just a few months ago, and also a study that suggests the Tasmanian wolf survived to the year 2000 at least. So, you know, we, we've got another Australian cryptid, and hopefully in the future we'll, we'll find out maybe it's still there and we can do an episode on it. In any event, special thanks to Matt Frad from Pints with Aquinas and also to Lindsay, Carolyn, and Lino, the Catholics of Oz. Be sure to check out all of their podcasts. Yes, please do. All right, so that's it from us. What do you think about this fearsome Australian cryptid that's known as the drop bear and their more peaceful cousins, the koalas? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Remember to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook and retweet it on Twitter where we're at SQPN as well. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to keep help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Thanks very much. Well, the Australian Tourist Commission has asked us to come up with a song that we could perform overseas, a song to help bring the tourists back to Australia. That's right. So we focused on the wonderful wildlife and the fabulous fauna that Australia has to offer. Red back funnel web, blue ring, octopus, taipan, tiger snake, and a box jellyfish, stonefish, and the poison thing that lives in a shell. The spicy when you pick it up. Come to Australia, you might accidentally get killed. Your life's constantly under threat. Have you been bitten yet? You've only got three minutes left before a massive coronary breakdown. 
red back funnel with blue ring octopus, taipan, tiger snake, adder box, jellyfish, big shark. Just waiting for you to go swimming at Bondi Beach. Come on, come to Australia. You might accidentally get killed. Your blood is bound to be spilled. With fear, your pants will be filled. Because you might accidentally get killed.